What's up, guys, and welcome to the second installment of the Red Shirt Podcast. Today, um, we'll be having our first guest. Um, I'd like to welcome my good buddy, Jacob Siegel. Uh, probably knows a lot more sports than I do. He's a Cal. He's a big Cal guy, uh, Bay Area guy, as well as big Wisconsin fan. Um, so welcome in. How are you? Good. How are you? Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Okay, so... Unlike our first episode, uh, was pretty short. Uh, it was about fifteen minutes. This one gonna be a bit more of a deep dive. Um, so let's get started. We'll start with um, the state of the MLB. You know, um, I touched on this in my first episode, but I kind of want your take on these negotiations and just what's stopping baseball from being played. All I know is this is not good. And right when it seems like it's getting better, it feels like we go right back to step one. And I'll be honest, I was on the players' side fully for a while, except then this past week when they said, tell us when and where, and then they were given a proposal and they sent a counter. Then I'm moving a little bit more towards the owners. I'm still on the player side, and I still think that the owners are the ones being greedy more than the players, but I think the players are a little bit more at fault now. I think I can agree with that. I, I, I mean, I definitely agree with that. I've been with the players the whole way, and I understand their frustration, and I think it's more than necessarily just these negotiations. I think they're really just fed up with front offices in general with, like, I mentioned it, um, like, service time manipulation, um, certain stuff like that, um, and just, like, free agency. So I've been with the players the whole time, except for I agree when they said when and where, and then they said no to the proposal. Was it a perfect proposal? Maybe not, but it's the best that um, the owners have put forth. It was, what, 60 games, full prorated. Maybe it's not exactly what the players wanted, but if, like you said, if they're saying when and where, I feel like sending that counter proposal kind of, that offset it. Yeah, and I'm just, this is getting me worried for the collective bargaining agreement in a few years, because if this is not pretty, I can't imagine how ugly that's going to oh, be. Oh, I think, without a doubt, we are heading for a lockout at the, yeah. when the 20, what, it ends in 2021 off season. yeah? Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be ugly, and obviously, I would much prefer not a 50-game season. I wish we could be seeing at least, like, 100 games, but I just, I want baseball back. I want baseball back, and I'll really take it in any form. Yeah, exactly. If we're staying up the middle of the night to watch KBO. Yeah, I can't even – look, I love baseball, but I don't. I can't even – personally, I haven't been able to do the KBO as much. But uh, really hope this all gets resolved. Um, and it's yeah. sad because it's more – we're seeing every other sport, you know, come up with options outside of football. Football doesn't have to be worrying about it quite yet. But um, with the NBA, the NHL – and then baseball is just, it's not back, not necessarily, okay. beca- it's not back necessarily because of coronavirus, it's because of, um, just because of conflict and money. Yeah, baseball should be the easiest sport to bring back. 100%. Touching each other as much. Yeah. But. Um, okay, so we'll move on to our next topic, sticking with baseball, um, talking about the MLB draft, that was, what, last week, Yeah. Last week, so we're kind of going to run down some of our favorite picks. I'll let you start. Okay, so I'll start with the number five pick, Austin Martin. 
I think he's probably my number two player in the draft, but I think you could make an argument that he's number the best player in the draft, especially when you value in his positional versatility. Uh, he's just an all-around good hitter. He probably has potential for 20, 25 homers a year. With the Blue Jays, who knows where he'll play with who they have. They can move Vladdy to first or anything like that. We'll see. But he's a utility player who is actually elite instead of just being okay at a bunch of things. He's elite at a few things. And so I just think getting him at five, even with the shoulder concerns, was a great pickup for the Blue Jays. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. Oh, feel free to continue. All right, my next one was Mick Abel at 15. I think I think it's 15 to the Phillies. I just think he's pretty polished for a high school right-hander. There's going to be another high school right-hander on this list. But I just think for the Phillies to be able to get him, replenish the arms in their farm system, and he has upside while right now he's not too raw, I think at 15 that's great value for the first high school writing, first high school pitcher in the draft. Mm-hmm. And then it, I think 24 was Nick Bitsko to the Rays. This is less about the player, but more about the spot. Because if there's anyone who's going to be able to use a high school righty who's young, who lights up Trackman and Rapsodo, it's going to be the Rays. They're going to be able to use the high spin rates and all that stuff to the best potential. And I think Bitsko could not have asked for a better landing spot. Yeah. Uh, the ne- next one's another right-handed pitcher. The final two are actually right-handed pitchers from college. This one's JT Ginn for the Mets. And while it was a risk because to overpay him, they basically had to forfeit the last few rounds of their draft, I think the upside is there. It was a first-round pick a few years ago. And even with the injury concerns, my philosophy for the draft has always been take the dudes with the ceiling, take the chances, because even the people who you think have a high floor, they don't always make the majors. And baseball's one with the 25 or 26 dudes in the majors, and you need to try and make those players as best you can. And I just think Ginn is a solid, solid pitcher. And even if he's recovering from Tommy John, he's not missing anything this year. And I think that he getting him in the second round now, he has a chance to overperform that because he was taken the first few years ago. And the last one for the Indians, I think, in the fifth round was Mason Hickman, the righty out of Vanderbilt. And I just think he's a good, solid pitcher. He knows how to pitch. He isn't just a thrower like some of the other people now. And he's competed on the highest stage, and I think that can be important. Yeah. Um, and that's going back for a second. And with the MLB draft, even the safest of prospects, you don't you don't really know. Baseball... Obviously, all drafts are unpredictable, but baseball the most. Like, I don't know about you, but um, especially during quarantine when, like, Bleacher Report has been doing, in various places have been doing, like, redrafts of uh, past drafts, you look at it, and, I mean, it, it's unpredictable. So, yeah. um, I'll get into it. I'll start um, number one pick. I'm totally biased about Spencer Torkelson, but the hype is there. Um, clear best player in the draft to me, and... They listed him as a third baseman. It doesn't matter where he plays. He can play third. He can play first. He's athletic enough if you want to throw him in the corner corner outfields. Um, he's just incredible. I'm not going to spend too much time talking about him. He's an elite hitting prospect whose bat, you could say, is really already major league ready, and especially for 
a team like the Tigers, who don't have much in the hitting category. So, love the Spencer Torkelson pick. That was a no-brainer to me. And it's just Andrew Vaughn with more power. So, Vaughn yeah. three is a right-handed first baseman. There's no reason not to take Torkelson one. Yeah, totally agree. Um, then I'm moving on to the number four pick, and that's uh, Asa Lacey. Best pitcher in the draft to me. Um, fell to four. I didn't think he'd fall out of the top three. All four of his pitches grayed out at 55-plus per MLB.com. And, I mean, when you watch it, you can see he's filthy. Uh, he's big, big guy, 6'4", with the ability to throw in those upper 90s with incredible off-speed. He got that pitch differentials. Um, his control can be improved, but overall, I mean, it's not a big ne- negative. And big lefty, I there's a lot to like with Ace Lacey. Then we're going to, I believe it was number nine, Zach Veen. Um, arguably the top prep bat, him and Robert Hazel, you know, you could argue. I like Veen a little better than Hazel. Um, I mean, no question the best pure bat. And he has, I mean, you look at his stance, he looks really similar to Cody Bellinger. And ultimately, he doesn't really have, when you watch him, he doesn't really have a specific flaw in his game. He's more, I'd say he's a little more, um, not even. He's elite as a hitter and power. And then you put him in eventually at Coors Field, I think he'll do wonders. Um, He's probably more of a corner outfielder than a center fielder, but all-around stud. Then we're going to, I feel like, was it 19 with the Mets, Pete Crow Armstrong? Don't quote me on 19, but first-round pick Pete Crow Armstrong. I think because he's been a big name in the prep circuit for a while, people saw him struggle a little bit and wrote him off. But the reality is he's an all-around stud, close to a five-tool player. Um, His swing might need a little bit of adjusting, I think. You know, he has uh, room to improve at the plate, but he's one of the best defenders in the class with elite speed. Um, his power isn't incredible. It's not off the charts, but I don't. he's not weak at all, and I think he has the pure strength where, you know, he can be maybe not as much of a home run hitter, but definitely he, he can develop that gap power. And so, I, I agree that's a great pick because some people are saying if he doesn't develop the power... He'll never be a great player, but if you can have gold glove defense in center field, they were showing during the draft comparisons to Kevin Kiermeyer. Yeah. You can still hit for a decent average, decent on base, and have some doubles power. I think that's top half of the league center fielder. Hundred percent. And I think and I think the thing Big is he, yes, there's the there's a chance that he doesn't develop at the plate, but he totally has the upside where I would not be surprised if he turns into Absolutely. a very solid hitter. So I like that pick. Um, then go to the third round. Um, my Padres took Cole Wilcox, um, starting pitcher from Georgia. Um, I think everyone expected him to go in the first round. He was a consensus top, you know, 32. You look around, maybe you could say like top 40. Um, definitely people expected him to go closer than the third. Uh, big frame. He's 6'5", 232. Has a very nice fastball. Um, his changeup and slider have shown signs of being a plus pitch. May not necessarily quite there, but um, by no means bad um, as secondary pitches. I think the big question about him is if he's a starter or reliever. But regardless, the value in the third round for um, a hard throwing college righty that was like I've I'm saying it over and over again that was expected to be a first round pick. The question remains: Is he 
signable. I think the Padres, they took some, you know, younger high school guys that'll be cost less in the later rounds. Um, so hopefully they can sign them for an above slot deal. And then the Padres oh, built their draft a lot like the Mets and Bertie Van Wagen and AJ Preller built similar drafts where they went big in the first few rounds. The Padres with obviously Wilcox and Hassel and the Mets with two players we've already talked about, McGinn and Crow Armstrong, and then almost threw away the end of the dra- the end of their draft. But I think it's worth it when you can get. Honestly, both teams got two first round caliber players, and didn't matter where they were picking. Even if you have to pay them over slot, I think it's worth throwing away the rest of your draft for. Yeah, totally agree. And then I have one more, and that is high school sensation Blaze Jordan. So, more than just being an internet sensation, Jordan, he, he rakes. Um, he's power over hit, for sure. Um, and there are questions about where he'll play defensively. Um, I, feel, I feel like he's mainly been playing third, but he's probably more of a first baseman. Not sure about his athleticism. Um, but somewhat similar to Torkelson, and in, and in no way am I saying that he's as good as Spencer Torkelson. But it's ultimately going to be his bat that's going to be his caring factor and what's going to get him to be a successful player. And I think the value of him, I think it was late third round that the Red Sox were able to snag him. Uh, I think it was a great pick. And he's committed to Mississippi State, but I'm pretty confident that the Red Sox will be able to sign him. So, yeah, that is going to conclude our little MLB draft segment. Moving on, sticking with baseball again. Um, I saw this question on Twitter a few days ago, and it was, let's say the MLB did a realignment, they did a fantasy draft, assuming Mike Trout goes number one, and keeping contracts um, in mind, who would be the second pick in uh, MLB redraft? So I think this has to be a position player, assuming we get back to 162 games or even somewhere close. I don't think you can pick a pitcher who's only going to play in a fifth of the games. Even if you could argue that the top pitcher is better than who the other player would be here, I think it just has to be a position player who's going to play every day. Yeah, I can agree with that. Um, In terms of pitchers you could think about, um, I, I agree. I think it has to be a position player. For me, the two intriguing pitchers, if you were to go that route, would be Walker Bueller and Jacob deGrom. Bueller maybe being the the better pick because he's he's younger. Um, similar control. They're both said to be free agents around uh, 2025, but DeGrom might be more proven, but he's um, the older option. So if you were to go to the pitcher route, those are my thoughts. Uh, Bueller, he's also had injury concerns in the past. So I think taking injury concerns at number two can just throw away your entire future. Yeah, I agree. I think that's why I would just stay away from pitchers and that. So for me... I see four guys in play for it, and that is Ronald Acuna Jr., who's on an eight-year, $100 million deal, um, only 22 years old. He's for free agency. He has an option at 2027, and if they pick it up, it'll go till 2029. Correct me if any of this is wrong. Um, you got Juan Soto, who um, is just going through the process of um, contract renewal and arbitration, 21, um, slotted to be 2025 free agent. Um, Christian Yelich uh, just signed the big but not massive extension of the nine years, $215 million. Have him set through 2030. He's 28. And then Cody Bellinger, 
who I believe is set to be a free agent 2024, um, only 24 years old. So those are the four that are in play. I don't know if you were considering anyone else, but those are my four. That yeah, I so I've actually only considered two of those four because I think none of these players are good enough hitters where you can sacrifice the defense when compared to the other guys. So for me, that eliminates Soto because I think he's an average at best defender, maybe even worse. And if he only has one more year of control than Bellinger, I don't think you can justify him with the lack of defense. And for me, Yelich, just because he's already 28, he already has his big extension, and he's a solid fielder, but compared to Acuna and Bellinger, he just doesn't stack up. And Acuna and Bellinger are good enough hitters. Yeah, I can agree with that. Um, obviously, Soto is the youngest of the group, but I agree he's a, uh, you know, put to put I'd say to put it kindly, an average fielder. I think he's a below average fielder right now. Yelich, um, he's on a great in terms. If you're looking at the money deal. He has a he has a pretty good contract for a superstar player, but like you said, he's twenty eight, um, not as good of a defender as Bellinger and Acuna. So for me, I think my pick is Ronald Acuna because initially when I just was looking at it on Twitter, my pick was Christian Yelich. But when you look into it, I think Ronald Acuna is, in my opinion, the best pick because they already have him locked up on a terrific deal. Um, that'll keep him at at least till twenty twenty seven, which he and he's twenty two years old. Um, his defense is good. I think he can continue to improve to the point where we consider him a five tool player. He can play. I mean, I'd probably like him the best in center with his speed, but he can play all three of the outfield spots. And I think, um, as time goes on, he's just going to be a better and better hitter. I think right now, maybe Soto's the better hitter, but it's incredibly close. And he'll learn to cut down on the strikeouts. He'll improve, you know, his on-base percentage. I think it'll keep going up and up. Um, and it ultimately, to me, it boils down to that contract. Bell- versus Bellinger, they don't have locked up. Um, and I think he's going to get an absolutely massive deal, which... I think Bellinger is not a bad. He's not bad by any means for that number two spot. And I understand it. I could really understand any of these four, but the security of having Acuna locked up is why I would take Acuna. So I think I might agree with Acuna, but I'll make the argument for Bellinger because I think without contracts, I'd take Bellinger. And Bellinger has three more years of arbitration, and so if you told me right now that he had a contract extension, even if it was. For massive money, I think I'd take Bellinger. I do agree that the security with Acuna helps. But with Bellinger, I think the positional versatility, like I was talking about with Austin Martin, he's a really good center fielder. He's elite in right field, and he's elite at first base, which I think will also help him age because he's not going to be, once he becomes too slow for center and too slow for right, he's still a really, really good first baseman, and and his bat will be able to carry him. I also think he strikes out way less and walks way more than Ronald Acuna, which is a lot of the way the game is going right now. And even if they have similar home run numbers, I think that walk striking out less, ultimately you can't get on base if you strike out, and you can get on base if you put the ball in play, and Bellinger makes a lot of hard contact. And so I think the grouping of the positional versatility with, less 
strikeouts makes it so that Bellinger, for me, is the better player. And if they were on even contracts, I would take Bellinger. But because of the extra handful of years with Acuna under control, because of the arguments you lined out, I think Acuna would probably be the better pick. Yeah, definitely. It's it's an interesting uh, argument. Obviously, would never happen, but it's a fun one to debate for sure. Yeah. Uh, so that'll be that'll be it for MLB. Well, technically, uh, we're gonna move on to a little bit of NFL discussion, and I just want to touch on this really quickly. We didn't have this in our notes. This was kind of brought up yesterday, and it hurts me to talk about it, but. Just I want to go briefly over the Jamal Adams situation. What are your thoughts? I mean, I'd love him as a Niner. I saw someone say that Niners should trade George Kittle for Jamal Adams. I think Ooh, I'd take not, it in a heartbeat. There's no way the Niners should do that. But I just think Adams is one of the best safeties in the NFL. And I just think overall this shows more where the NFL is going because all these players are requesting trades. And what stands out to me is that even though Adams does not have a no-trade clause, he still has the power to basically say, I will only accept a trade to these teams. And so I think it's almost like all stars at this point have a no-trade clause. And I just think that's a really interesting dynamic. Yeah. The thing for me is, look, the Jets mess up all the time. We're an awful organization. But I don't think Joe Douglas and the front office has done anything wrong right now. They've made their intentions clear that... They said after the draft they would they'd start talking to Jamal Adams and then a pandemic hit. And Jamal Adams has two years left on his rookie deal, and I totally agree. He he wants to get paid. The Jets have said they want him to be a Jet for life and they want to pay him. But it doesn't make sense right now because we don't know what the salary cap's gonna look like for the future given the pandemic and with two years left on his contract. So, look, Jamal Adams is probably my favorite player in football. Far and away the best safety, in my opinion. One of the best young stars in football. But, I don't know. If he doesn't, it sounds, it's starting to sound like he just doesn't want to be here. Because previously, he said he wants to be a Jet for life. And then I saw some, and then he's saying that he wants his money. And then I saw some reports yesterday and this morning that he'd be willing to get, he listed out like seven teams he wants to get traded to that are all contenders, and he said that he'd be willing to get traded and not have an extension. So, I don't know. It just sets a bad precedent, and I don't think the Jets are default. Obviously, I want him here, um, and it'll really pain me personally if he gets traded, but it's just a sticky situation. And I saw a crazy report this morning that he wants $20 million plus, and if that's true, we can ship them easily. Yeah. But. Well, I think it also shows how much power players are having in sports. And we've been seeing it with Chuba Hubbard and Mike Gundy and Marvin Wilson and Mike Norvell, just that players are being able to speak out. And in this situation, he's probably going to get his wish and get traded at some point. And just that the power is going away from management and coaches and moving towards players at all levels. Yeah, which I think overall I like, but I I think Jamal. I mean, this is crazy. This is I think it's it's been inc- crazy from his camp and totally, totally insane. But that was impromptu. I just wanted to get your thoughts on that, and I don't know. It's a tough subject for me. So next we're gonna move. Um, I have a handful of questions. We're gonna do like buy and sell kind of stuff. Um, 
I'll start off. I'll ask you, um, the or not ask you the assumption. The Bills are the team to beat in the AFC East. I would absolutely buy that. I think if we go through the team, the Jets, just no, never. The Dolphins, I think they're getting there. I really like their coaching staff with Brian Flores. I think that Tua has the potential to be one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL. I just don't think they're going to be able to make that jump this year. I don't think, and especially without some of the camps that they're missing out on, I just and breaking in all the new rookies, I don't think this is the year. I think the Patriots can be solid. I think they're a fringe playoff team. But I just don't think they have the weapons on offense to be the team to beat. Because even with Brady the last few years, they haven't had the same weapons. It's basically just been Julian Edelman and Brady. And so now Jarrett Stidham and Brady, I don't know if Stidham has the same level of trust with Edelman. And so I just think that the Bills almost by default, have to be the team to beat. Yeah, I mean, I probably agree, but to play devil's advocate, I'd say you, know, you can't ever count out the Patriots. And the thing is, I, I'm not, I don't know how I feel about Jared Stidham, but I know, I know how I feel about Bill Belichick, and he's just he's incredible. So if anyone can get it done after losing the greatest player of all time, arguably, um, it's Belichick, and I. the defense, they're losing a little bit, but I think the core is together for that elite defense, and offensively, I think it'll shift much more to run heavy um, with Sony Michelle. I think Sony Michelle um, could be poised for a breakout year, and offensively, I don't. they really don't have the weapons at receiver. It's pretty bare. What it's, they have Edelman, Sanu, um, not much at tight end. Um, I, I mean, look, I love Nikhil Harry. Hopefully he can stay healthy and we can see what he can do. So I don't I, – I, I agree. I think the Bills are the team to beat. But my point being, never count out Belichick. So I would – I'd buy that the Bills are the team to beat in the AFC, but you can make the argument for the Patriots. So next up, um, Kyler Murray is an MVP candidate. I think based on talent he might be, but I'm going to sell this. I think right now he's the third best team in his division, and I just don't think that they are going to be able to overcome both the Niners and the Seahawks. I think there's a decent chance they finish second in the division, but a team that's a wild card team, I think it's really tough to win MVP. And if they finish third in the division, I think it's almost impossible. And so I just think there's better candidates out there who are on winning teams because most trophies right now in all sports and we'll touch on this later in the Heisman trophy are going to the quarterbacks on the best teams yeah um I can understand that but for me and maybe I'm just drinking the Kool-Aid of the of the big offseason you know maybe they'll be you know the Browns 2.0 but I love the Cardinals for next year I think when when it gets around when it gets around to me making my predictions they honestly might I might have them winning the NFC West. And that's just how much I love what they've done in the offseason. I think Kyler Murray, I will 100% buy it. Do I think he's going to win it? Probably not. Do I think he can compete? Yes. He has, I think, the offense is tailor-made for him. The Kingsbury system works very well for him. He had a great rookie year despite, you know, having a very bare offense. So what do you do? Um, they locked up Kenyon Drake for another year, who had a breakout year. 
you added in DeAndre Hopkins, arguably the best receiver in the league, um, to an already pretty solid wide receiver corps. And then offensive line's looking a little better. Um, I think there's definitely there's definitely room for him to win MVP. He's not going to be my pick, but the guy's incredibly talented and showed that he can make stuff happen um, even when the cupboard um, wasn't, you know, was half half full. And now that he has, he has another year in the system and he has some more legitimate weapons, I think he can totally compete for it. For me, it just goes back. I think this year is the year where they're going to have to learn how to win. Kingsbury at Texas Tech never really won much. Yeah, Kyler Murray won the Big 12 at Oklahoma, but right now it feels like Oklahoma can win the Big 12 with one of us at quarterback. Yeah. As long as, long as we're a transfer. Yeah. And so I just think this year they're going to have – they have the talent. They just have to learn how to win and how to finish games, and then next year will be their breakout year. Similar – as you were pointing out with the Browns, how last year they had all the hype. And I think this year they might live up to it, but last year they just didn't finish. That, that's fair. Totally fair. Um, next one, the Lions can fight for a playoff spot. Uh, I'm actually going to buy this. I think for once they are out of the cellar. I think the Bears are just terrible. I don't think they're any good. I think they're going to be have a top five pick. And I'm a huge believer in... Matthew Stafford, I get that he has to stay healthy and that he rarely stays healthy, but I was having a debate with one of my friends, and I think Matthew Stafford is clearly the better quarterback than Jimmy Garoppolo. Matt Patricia comes from the Bill Belichick system. They have TJ Hawkinson. They have Marvin Jones. They have Kenny Galladay. They have talent. So I think if Stafford can stay healthy, they can put together a good year with the unknown in their division, I think that could be a division that you win with eight, nine, ten wins. Because there's turmoil with Rodgers and the Packers, the Vikings, just Kirk Cousins is never elite. He's just always okay. They're always beatable. And then the Bears are just terrible. Yeah. Um, I think I find it funny. I feel like uh, Kirk Cousins is like entering like Joe Flacco territory, where he's he's not elite, but like he's that tier right below. You know what I mean? I kind of yeah. like the way people consider Joe Flacco. But um, for me, I'm gonna sell this, and it's for two main reasons. One, it's the Lions. I never put trust in the Lions. And two, it's Matt Patricia. I think he's a bottom five coach. Um, he comes from the Belichick tree, but I f- I feel like you find that. That day doesn't mean the same. I, you haven't seen his um, assistants have that much success away from New England. And I, I do like the offense a lot on paper. And I total, I love Matthew Stafford. I think when he's healthy, he's very good and, and criminally underrated. And I feel so bad he's had to have his career in Detroit. But I just think Matt Patricia is not – I just he's a, he's like I said, he's a bottom five coach. I don't think – I, f- I don't think he can get it done. And in the division, I agree the Bears are in the cellar, and there's questions about Green Bay and Minnesota, but I think Green Bay and Minnesota are going to be very hard to beat. I think both of them will be competing for the playoffs, and I think at least one of them will. I would expect to get 10-plus wins. So I'm going to be selling this. Never put faith in the Lions is what I've learned, or really any- anything Michigan-based sports-wise. 
Um, so then we're going to move on to our fourth and final buy or sell, and that's going to be if Jimmy Garoppolo struggles in 2020, San Francisco will explore other options. I think I have to sell this one. I think they may have more of an open competition with people that already have, like Nick Mullins, except I don't think they'll explore outside. I don't think they'll do what the Bears did and try and acquire a Nick Foles type. I think with all the money they have tied up in Jimmy G, and it's clear Shanahan trusts him, and he just got Shanahan just got a huge contract extension this week. It seems pretty clear to me that the Niners believe in Shanahan, and Shanahan believes in Garoppolo, and so those two will be interconnected. And so I think they'll rise together as they did up until the Super Bowl, and then they'll fall together as they did, obviously. <laughs> I think. I mean, yeah, I, I have to agree. I'd, I'd sell it. Um mainly because I think it would take a catastrophically awful season. Like, I think they'd have to be have, like, a top-five pick kind of thing for um, them to explore external options, and I don't see that happening. Um, although, I agree with you in the sense that if he does struggle mightily, I think it's fair to try to push him. But ultimately, his contract, um, and you're right, that interconnection with Shanahan, it's really hard to to justify or argue that um, they would legitimately explore other options. And they just can't bring in more money. We saw they had to trade DeForest Buckner. They basically traded DeForest Buckner straight up for Javon Kinlaw, and that was pretty much to clear money, Uh, especially if they go after Jamal Adams, like we talked about a little bit earlier. I just don't think that they can pay Garoppolo and another quarterback. Yeah. Well, that was... was a bit brief, that, but that was our NFL segment. Now we're going to move to at least my favorite, probably your favorite part, college football. So we're going to start with a uh, little bit of Heisman discussion, um, Dark Horses, and then our pick. I'll let you go. Yeah, so similar to my thoughts on the MLB Fantasy Draft, how that has to be an everyday player, I think the Heisman is a QB award. I think someone has to have such an insane season is any other position that it's only smart to bet on a quarterback. And I think overall it's going to go to either the quarterback on the best team or the quarterback on the team that breaks out. And so you'll see that in my picks and my dark horses. I'll just give you my pick right now. It's Justin Fields. He is the favorite. He's about 3-1 to most places. And I think being at Ohio State, unlike Lawrence at Clemson, he'll play late enough into games and he'll be able to rack up the numbers that Lawrence won't. He doesn't have voter fatigue, similar to how Mike Trout should win MVP every single season, and he doesn't. How LeBron James is the best player in basketball every year, but he doesn't always win MVP. I think that the Heisman voters have that fatigue with Lawrence and not yet with Fields. And I also think that Fields is just going to have enough big primetime games in the regular season where for Lawrence, the other favorite at Clemson, they basically just play Notre Dame and that's kind of it for their big games on their schedule. But Fields is hopefully going to play Oregon, but that game's up in the air. But then they also have games against Michigan and Penn State where he's just going to be in the spotlight. Yeah, um, I agree. Um, don't – I. I feel like we've agreed a lot, so I'm sorry about that. But um, yeah, it's Fields. I think along with what you're seeing, along with what you're saying, that it's often going to be the best player on the best team. That's Justin Fields to me. I th- I think Ohio State is going to absolutely demolish everyone. I 
I would not be surprised if they won every game by double digits or even two-plus possessions. And I think Fields was incredible last year. And he's really... I mean, he's not losing much production offensively. He has Olave. He has Garrett Wilson. Um, Let's see. Uh, He has Julian Fleming coming in. You have, yes, you're losing J.K. Dobbins, but you have Trey Sermon coming in, and he has a great offensive line around him. Ryan Day is an incredible coach, and I think we're going to see him do even better than last year, which is hard to fathom. And one other thing, sorry, one other thing I like about him is Lawrence statistically – um, showed, showed himself to be a pretty good runner, and he's a good runner, but when I think of Fields, I think of him more as a dual-threat guy, and I think he can do more with his legs. And I also think that losing J.K. Dobbins, and even if Sermon's good, he's not great, that at least early in the season and in the big games, they're going to have to rely on Fields even more because he doesn't have a Travis Etienne that he can hand the ball off to. He's going to have to do more on his own. Yeah, that's totally, totally agree. Etienne is definitely going to block up some stats from Trevor Lawrence. So then I'll get into my dark horse pick. And this, I mean, you could probably see it reflected in my quarterback rankings, uh, my most recent article on theredshirt.blog. Make sure to check that out. Um, And that's Brock Purdy. Um, I just... I think picking a Big 12 quarterback as a sleeper is always is, is always a decent move. Do I think he's going to win it? Do I, I'm not even sure if he'll get invited. Probably not. But he took a step forward from his freshman year um, to his sophomore year. I expect him to make an even bigger leap as a junior. And he's losing a decent deal at wide receiver in terms of production. But um, Brees Hall or is it? Breesy Hall, a running back, pretty good. Um, Charlie Kohler is a good tight end. Uh, Tariq Milton, all of those guys are totally serviceable. And going back to the Big 12 aspect of it, it's not hard to put up gaudy numbers in the Big 12. And I think Brock Purdy um, makes sense for him to have a breakout year. I had him, I had him listed number four on my quarterback rankings. I think the main thing that is going to stop him is I will say it's team success. But I think he's so talented that I could even see him bringing it up a little bit. So that's my dark horse pick. So for me, I kind of have some criteria for a dark horse. I think, as I said earlier, they have to be a quarterback. They have to have the potential to be in their conference championship. Because once they're in their conference championship, who knows what they can do there. They have a decent chance of winning their conference. And I think they need to have some primetime games against primetime teams to have that defining Heisman moment. So my first guy, he's about 20 to 1, is Ian Book. I'm not necessarily the biggest Ian Book believer, but I think he has almost the Heisman path available for him. Notre Dame plays a big schedule. They're always on national TV. They're, they have their NBC deal. They, they play Clemson this year. They play USC. They play everywhere in the country. There's no lack of East Coast bias holding him back. And... He also has the new coordinator, Tommy Reese, Tom Reese, whatever he wants to go by. And so I think even though he's going to be a senior, he has more potential for a jump than most seniors normally do. Um, My next two are pretty similar, Bo Nix and Spencer Sanders. I think they're both dudes with some serious weapons. They're both incoming sophomores that have a chance to take the jump. I think that for Spencer Sanders... If they can get over the hump and beat Oklahoma, that can be a Heisman moment. Even if he doesn't do anything in that game, just finally beating OU would be that Heisman moment. And 
we'll get into it later with our dark horse teams, but I'm really high on Oklahoma State with Chuba Hubbard and Tylen Wallace. Bo Nix has new coordinator. He has Chad Morris coming in. And I just think that in the SEC, we'll also get into Auburn in my dark horse teams. But I think that they are almost the second best team in the West. And I think that who knows what happens when they play Alabama. Those games are just crazy. Almost throw all logic out the window and just watch football. And then my last one at 40 to 1, this is my favorite pick, is Sean Clifford. And it's less about Sean Clifford, but I'm super high on Penn State. I think that they are honestly on paper a top four team in the country. I think that they're probably going to lose to Ohio State. But if they win that game, I think they can absolutely go undefeated. And at that point, it goes back to the quarterback on the best team and the breakout team getting the award. And so I think there would go to Sean Clifford. Yeah, I can um I can agree with that. I'm very high on Penn State and Oklahoma State, and I'm glad that um, we'll be touching on Oklahoma State a little bit later. Um, okay, so next up we're gonna go over just a little bit uh, Pac-12 talk. Both of us are, uh, you know, West Coast guys. Um, you know that I'd say our top conferences in the Pac-12. As as I said earlier, he's a Cal guy. I'm an Arizona State guy, so uh, let's dive into it. The first... There's also a need for more media with a West Coast bias. Yeah, definitely. We need West Coast bias. Um, so first first question or discussion topic is just kind of Keaton Slovis versus Jaden Daniels. Um, your thoughts on it, maybe who you like better, and honestly just kind of looking at ASU versus USC while these two are the quarterbacks. Yeah, so... I think it's close. I was fortunate enough to see both of them in person last year against Cal. They both beat Cal. Uh, And honestly, Slovis was probably more impressive in person. He, during that game, he basically just threw the ball in the air and Michael Pittman caught it. Um, So I'm super high on Michael Pittman. I'm super high on the Colts, but that's another discussion for another day. Um, But I just think Slovis in the air rating Graham Harrell's offense, it's set up for quarterbacks to thrive. He has the stability this year that Jaden Daniels doesn't because they're bringing a new coordinator. I believe it's Zach Hill. Yes. Boise State. Yeah. Um, and Daniels, to me, in person, wasn't great in the pocket. He was amazing at creating something out of nothing, except I think to be that makes a good quarterback, but to be a great quarterback, he has to be able to make the plays in the pocket and make the plays he should. And a lot of the time it felt like he was making the plays he shouldn't, but not necessarily the plays he should. So I still think he's a top 10 quarterback in the country, but I just think Slovis is a hair better, especially this year with the stability with Harrell. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's a that's a totally fair argument, and I'm 100% biased. I'm not going to act like I'm not biased towards Jaden Daniels. But the thing about Jaden Daniels, and obviously I watched him under more of a microscope, and I saw him with just about every play versus Slovis. I wasn't looking as close and didn't see everything. Jane Daniels is a pure playmaker, and I think I agree that Keaton Slovis is in a perfect system, but the argument for Jane Daniels is that he, I mean, if it weren't for him, ASU might not be going to a bowl game. He led, I'm trying to think, I don't know the number on my hand, but he, it was four-plus game-winning drives. He had... That comeback at Michigan State, um, which is a gritty game. Um, Washington State dove into the uh, dove in like a helicopter, and I mean, I think 
with Jaden Daniels, I he he definitely has room to improve as a pure passer, but I think I just love his escapability and his dual threat ability. And I keep saying and next year I think it's gonna be more his offense. It was more the Eno Benjamin show this year, and with likely going uh back by committee next year and him becoming a sophomore I think Herm Edwards is going to give him the keys to the offense and I just expect him to flourish and I think that Cal game was a little bit of an anomaly I feel like he typically is a little better in the pocket but um that's just the argument for Jane Daniels I think he's a pure playmaker that has that clutch gene that you just can't teach so I, I, t- I think Daniels has way more potential than Slovis I think all Slovis is is a great pocket passer, which in college in that system is great, and it can flourish in the NFL under the great system. Under a great system, and I think because of that it takes Slovis right now. But I agree that because of Daniel's playmaking ability, I think he will in time be the better quarterback, just not quite yet. Yeah, that's totally fair. And I think I don't. I think Daniel's at his peak is going to be. You know, I think we're going to be seeing him play like that Oregon game. That was. An incredible performance. He has that arm talent, and he's he has the poise that he's he's not scared of anything. So, big big Jane Daniels guy. I think it'll be fun to watch him play early this year, week four, week three, one of the two. Um, USC ASU, that'll be fun, and then we get to see him for another year. Um, before odds are at least one of them, if not both, head to the NFL. Um, and kind of sticking on this topic, um. USC versus ASU, I think those are probably the two front runners in the South. Uh, what What do you think? Yeah, well, I agree. I think those are clear top two. I think we're going to dive into Utah later, but with Jake Bentley, I just don't think there's enough there for Utah, especially with what's been going on with their defensive coordinator, I believe. Um, so I do think it's a two-horse race in the South unless something crazy happens, and i I don't know, it's tough for me because I think USC is definitely the better team, except it's also USC in the past few years. Clay Helton is just a moron. I was watching an old Cal-USC game, and he ran a fake field goal in like the f- first drive of the game. made no sense, and then they lost by two, uh, which I'll take as a Cal fan, but I just <laughs> I don't know if I can put my trust in Clay Helton to win the, to win the division. I think while they're the more talented team, I might have to go with ASU just because, as you were saying, Daniels has the clutch gene. He, you just can't coach that. And I think Helton is the opposite of that. Yeah. Um. So I think USC is for sure the safe pick because they're probably the better team. They, I think they are the better team on paper. But I don't know. It's a tough schedule. Um, they do get ASU at home, which is a which is a plus. But they go to Utah, they go to Oregon, they go to UCLA, they get um, Washington and Notre Dame at home. But I mean, that's a pretty tough schedule. So when it figures into the Pac-12 race, like obviously conference um, record is what matters the most. Um, I think they'll be all right. But for me, I think I have ASU as the pick mainly because I have ASU beating USC Week Four. And because um, you're. Okay, I'm kind of biased about everything, but I like, I don't know, I'm a bigger fan of ASU winning the South, similarly because um, of our questions about Clay Hilton, um, 
And here, let me pull this up. I want to make sure I'm not saying anything wrong. Um, I don't know. I just... Honestly, I'll be 100% honest with you. ASU, after, after, it was, after Sarkeesian, after Lane Kiffin, ASU both times was the reason that the coaches got fired. I think it might happen a third time. That's all I'm saying with Clay Helton. So it's, it's definitely a toss-up, and it, it'll come down primarily to who wins week four because that's the first, pack, or first Pac-12 game for ASU, second for USC. That'll put them in the driver's seat for the rest of the season, and the other team will have to hope for a couple losses. So, uh, yeah, we took a little long on that one. We'll move on to um, what we think Washington's going to look like without Chris Peterson. I'll let you start. So I think the future is actually not as bright as I thought it would be. I thought that this 2021 recruiting class is amazing in the state of Washington. They have skill position players like Emeka Ibuka, they have one of the best quarterbacks who they actually did get to commit to Washington. In Sam Heward, they weren't able to commit people from California like Troy Franklin. And that I think for this year, they actually have a chance in the North. I think I'd put them third, which we'll get into later. But I think their QB room is actually better than they're giving credit for. They have Dylan Morris and Jacob Sermon. This past week, they had Kevin Thompson, who's a grad transfer from Sacramento State. I actually think is really good. Sacramento State had one of their best years ever last year under Troy Taylor, a former Cal guy. And they also have Ethan Garbers, who's the brother of Chase Garbers, who's just an absolute stud. He's a playmaker in the state championships in high school last year. Is he, he just, a quarterback? He is a quarterback. Okay. He's another quarterback. He's similar to Chase Garbers, just obviously more raw as he is younger. But I think he has the chance to win the job this year. And if not he'll be competing with Sam Heward for years to come. And so I think even if Lake hasn't brought in the recruiting victories that I think some of us honestly expected from him and thought that may be the reason why he became the coach and they're almost wasting that 2021 recruiting class in the state of Washington, I think that this year they might be able to produce victories on the field. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, looking more at it just from this year, I don't think necessarily Peterson leaving is going to be, like, a huge, like, blow. I think maybe you could say that's the difference between winning and losing a couple games. But you're looking at it this year. Uh, I think odds are Sermon will be the starter, um, former four-star recruit. Uh, losing some production at wide receiver, when I was looking at it, it looks like Terrell Bynum will probably be the top target. And then at running back, um... Uh, Salvin uh, Ahmed is gone, but uh, Washington's proved that they just they crank out running backs that can produce in the Pac-12, and it looks like Richard Newton will be the one taking over. And, I mean, he played pretty well last year as a secondary back, as well as they bring back a good deal of a good defense, so I think they can compete in the Pac-12. Um, I, I also have them probably as the third team in the North, but... Um, I don't know. Washington's never a bad bet. I think they're always a solid team. And I think looking at recruiting, Lake might have a little bit of a drop-off, but I think the program overall is in a, still in a pretty good spot. Yeah, I can agree with that. I think they're going to be one of the teams where they're always going to be good. They're never going to have those drop-off years, almost similar to Utah in the Pac-12 South. And I think their first game against Michigan, assuming it happens, which... 
we're all really hoping for will tell us a lot about both teams with their new quarterbacks because I think that early season test will prove how quickly these teams can get their quarterbacks acclimated. And I think the one that gets acclimated faster between Michigan and Washington has a chance to go to New Year's Six Bowl. And I think the one that's lagging behind, or they could both lag behind, are honestly seven or eight win teams, which are not up to expectations for either of those programs. Yeah, I think, yeah, definitely going to get an early test for both teams. Uh, next up, we're going to talk about the Oregon quarterback situation. Um, I don't know about you. Obviously, we haven't really seen much of Tyler Shaw. We've He's thrown 15 passes in college. But I'm not, I don't know. I'm not necessarily sold on him. I think Anthony Brown is better than people give credit. I think he can compete for the job as here. I feel like he was pretty solid at Boston College. He just had some injury issues in 2019. But regardless of who's at quarterback, they have some pretty good weapons at wide receiver. As well as, I mean, the defense is incredible. So as long as the offense is average or serviceable, the Oregon defense, which I expect to be maybe one of the best units in all of college football next year, can lead them to success and have them competing for both the Pac-12 and uh, the college football playoff. Yeah, I totally agree. But I honestly think I'm not putting that much stock into who wins the quarterback job. I'm more curious how much the offense changes under Joe Moorhead. Because with Justin Herbert, who was a top 10, top 5 college quarterback the past few years, the offense was boring stagnated a lot just didn't lag behind the defense honestly and that's not what people expect at Oregon that's not what you expect of a Justin Herbert led offense and so now they're bringing in Joe Moorhead from Mississippi State and I think it might be a year too late but I'm curious to see how the offense changes because they're bringing in Jay Butterfield as a recruit from Northern California this year they have Ty Thompson committed in the 2021 class they have Troy Franklin one of their best receiver commits ever that we touched on earlier. And so Joe Moorhead could make this offense flourish. And even though ideally for Oregon, he leaves in a couple of years for a head coaching job. Maybe he takes the Oregon head coaching job. If Chris Ball goes to Alabama, I think that he has the chance to turn this. It's gone from an offense only program under Chip Kelly. And now it's leaning towards defense only program. And I think that Moorhead can help balance that out and make them both elite, which is the only way that they're going to be able to get into and compete in the playoff. Yeah. Damn, Troy Franklin, the one that got away. He looks so good in maroon and gold. Um, uh, then our last little Pac-12 part, well, in, at least in this specific segment, um, I'm just going to let – I'm just going to throw this to you, Jacob. Is Cal a sleeper in the North? And what are your thoughts on your beloved Bears? Well, for me, I have them predicted second. So I don't think they can be a sleeper because I already have them so good. I mean, it's the most Cal thing ever for this to be the year of coronavirus, the most hyped Cal season that I can remember. Um, But they have the quarterback, we think. There's never any certainty with Cal. Chase Garbers needs to stay healthy. He needs to learn how to slide. Watching games from 2019, 2018, doesn't matter. He needs to slide. He needs to stay healthy. Uh, last year, I think they were undefeated when he played the whole game, and they lost multiple games when he was out. They got demolished in Utah with the third-string quarterback, Spencer Brash. They lost to USC and Arizona State when Garbers got knocked out during the game. 
except when Garbers played, they looked really, really good at times. The bowl game against Illinois, it felt like the offense was going somewhere. They're bringing Bill Musgrave as their offensive coordinator. He hasn't been in college football in a while, so people aren't sure how that's going to work out. Um, I think it's probably a step up from Bo Baldwin, who has not been great. He's been on all the Cal message boards. No one's really liked him. They think the offense needs some more creativity. Um, So we'll see if Bill Musgrave brings that. Cal's adding back the fullback, stuff like that. Um, And the defense, they're, they're losing... Both their safeties, except I don't think that's going to be as huge of a loss because they're moving one of their best cornerbacks, Elijah Hicks, to safety to fill that void. He played there for the injured Ashton Davis in the Red Box Bowl, which I think was crucial. New York Jet Ashton Davis. I think that was crucial because they were able to win the game, and also without spring ball, I think it was huge for Elijah Hicks to get the game speed reps at safety. And they are losing Evan Weaver. I think he was the heart and soul of their defense of their team last year. He tackled literally anyone that came near him. Mm, Struggled against ASU. But I think they'll be able to cope without him. I think there's enough with Corny Dang and Cameron Good that I think their defense will be able to function. I think by bringing back a lot of their offensive line, it feels like the line has always been good, just never better than that. They've never totally meshed. So I think they'll be able to mesh this year. And Cal, honestly, has some pretty good players at the skill positions. Christopher Brown Jr. is a really good running back. They have Marcel Dancy, the change of pace. They brought in Bradrick Shaw from Wisconsin, is more of a bruiser. He's a grad transfer. And then at wide receiver, they have some serious talent with people like Makai Polk. They have Jake Tonges, a local guy. A tight end and so I think if Garber stays healthy and Musgrave implements the offense the way he wants it I think this team is absolutely the second best team in the Pac-12 North I think I never trust Cal to beat Oregon I think if they beat Oregon head-to-head they have a chance at winning the Pac-12 North but I don't think I think it's going to take almost a miracle for them to make the Pac-12 championship game this year yeah I definitely I think on a national scale, and kind of going back to you saying, Cal, is Cal really a sleeper? I think it's more on a national scale. You know, obviously, people not in the western area of the country don't really realize so much about the Pac-12. They kind of stick with, like, stereotypes and stuff. But, uh, yeah. Next, we're going to go into more general sleeper, our sleepers and overhyped teams going into 2020. All right, so I'll start. I have three sleepers. I'll start with the two who I kind of touched on in the Heisman candidates with Auburn and Oklahoma State. I think both have QBs that were good last year. They were solid. There were times when they looked outmatched, like they should still be in high school. But I think both can take a step up this year. Nick's obviously has a new offensive coordinator in Chad Morris. And I think that Auburn might honestly be the second-best team in the SEC West. We'll get into that with my overhyped teams. And I think Oklahoma State has set up their schedule really, really well with basically a joke of a non-conference schedule because they are a team that can't afford to lose a non-conference game and still be able to make the playoff. And I think this year they honestly have the potential to make the playoff. They just need to either beat Oklahoma in the regular season and the conference championship or make the 
Oklahoma regular season game, their only loss, get to the conference championship game, then get them in a rematch. So I think while they have to get over that hump of beating Oklahoma, it's going to be they have a chance this year, especially with Oklahoma breaking in Spencer Rattler. And then my last sleeper team is more of a deep sleeper. I don't think they have any playoff potential. I think they might be able to win their division is actually Duke. They have a decent amount of returning defensive production. They have a steady coach in David Cutcliffe. And they have a new QB, which doesn't seem great right now, but I'm a huge, huge Chase Bryce guy. I think that he has the potential to be really, really good at Duke. I think he can lead them to seven, eight wins, and their non-conference is manageable. They play Notre Dame, so that they should probably lose. But other than that, they should win their other non-conference games. I'm pretty sure they missed Clemson during the regular season, so I think they could get up to eight wins this year, which would be a great season by Duke standards. Yeah. Um, I'll get into my sleepers. First off, I didn't include Oklahoma State on my list. I didn't care for the parody, but I told Oklahoma State is probably one of my favorite teams in the country. Totally think they can win the Big 12. It's just a matter. I think they should be able to beat Oklahoma. It's just a matter if they actually do it. But I'll get into mine. And that is Louisville, far and wide, my favorite team going into the 2020 season. Um, uh, Michael Cunningham, I could have mentioned in uh, Heisman Dark Horses. He was quietly very good last season. And then he has a great amount of returners on offense, including another guy I love, and that's Tutu Atwell. They have uh, Javian Hawkins, who had a I believe it was his freshman campaign. He had a terrific campaign as a freshman at running back. And then they have a capable second receiver that's Des Fitzpatrick. And after that awful 2018, I think the strides that they showed um, in 2019 under Scott Satterfield make me very excited. And then uh, you think about the ACC, um, not... The strongest, obviously. You know, you sometimes see some of the cannibalism you get in the Pac-12. But overall, I think it's very manageable. Uh, and I think they can totally compete. Do I think they're going to win their division? Unfortunately, no, because they do have Clemson. But I think they can. They have the potential to win just about every game on their schedule. Um, not that I think they'll do it, but... Their defense, it's not spectacular, but they're not losing a great deal of it. Um, And overall, when you look at total production, um, at least per ESPN, they're ranked number 13 in production, returning at 78%. So that's a big reason I am very excited about Louisville, and I could see them going as far as the New Year's Six Bowl. Yeah, I can see that too. I think that Louisville, as you said, has a tougher path just in their division because they are with, probably the best team in college football you can debate that all you want they're definitely a top three team everyone's gonna predict Clemson in the playoff but I think Louisville could definitely win 10 games this year I think I'd predict them more for eight or nine but with I think they're really well set up to handle the pandemic this year they have their quarterback they have their coach yeah I love so, I love Scott Satterfield so going into my overhyped team so my there are two bigger-name teams. My first one is LSU. Uh, I've touched on why I think Auburn is really good. I don't think LSU is that good. I don't trust Miles Brennan. I don't think he's very good. And I think LSU is going to be one of the teams most hurt by the pandemic. Beyond having just the championship fatigue, 
They have lots of new coaches. They have Bo Pelini. Even though he wasn't the offensive coordinator, I think Joe Brady leaving is pretty big. He's not going to be in Steve Ensminger's ear every game. Dave Aranda left. And I just think that that's a lot to break in along with the new quarterback and a lot of production leaving. Uh, outside Jamar Chase, they don't have a ton coming back on offense or on defense. And wide receivers are great, but they can't win the game by themselves. They need someone to get them the ball. And I just don't trust Miles Brennan to do that. And then my other overhyped team is Miami. I don't think Diaz has proven anything. They're kind of a team where... I need them to prove it to me before I can believe in it. Uh, I don't think King... I think Derek King is a fine quarterback. I don't think he's great. He hasn't had the time to get up to speed in that offense. And just, I don't think Miami... I don't think this is the year for Miami. I think they have all the hype. And as we've seen the last few times, the last few years when they've had the hype, they've gotten demolished by Wisconsin twice. They've lost other games. They've kind of fallen from grace when they were undefeated late in the year a few years ago, and now they're here, and I just don't trust Manny Diaz or De'Aaron King to close out games. I just think they're going to be a 7-8 win team again, and there's people thinking they can make a New Year's Six Bowl, and I'd much rather, I think Louisville has a much better chance of that than Miami. Yeah. Um, I think definitely the pandemic will hurt. Derek King getting acquainted to the offense, and it's fair to never trust Miami. Um, although I do, I do love Derek King a lot. I can agree with that. As well as the thing about LSU is it's never been a talent. They've never been talent deficient, um, even before you know their championships. But with the loss of a bunch of big coordinators and the loss of you know the. Joe Joe Burrow, who had the greatest college football season we've seen, it's hard to imagine them, you know, getting back to winning the division, let alone the college football playoff, because um, that's what it took. They've been mediocre at quarterback, and it's maybe Miles Brennan can surprise us, but he's not. He hasn't shown it yet. So then, yeah, let's see. Their run to close out the season is just ridiculous. They play Alabama at home. Then they have South Carolina at home, which is a game they should definitely win. And the last two weeks of the season, they have to travel to Auburn, Texas A&M. I'm not super high on Texas A&M, but it's never easy to win going into Kyle Field. We all remember that game in the 70s they played last time. Oh, classic. With College Station and Auburn, I just think touchdown Jesus is real. Auburn Jesus, whatever it is, Auburn. <laughs> Isn't that Notre Dame? Notre Dame's touchdown, Jesus. Auburn has Auburn, Jesus. And just <laughs> anything can happen at Auburn, I feel like. And they're going to be a talented team. Gus Malzahn, just a madman. But I don't think anyone's safe going into Jordan Hare. Totally fair. Um, I have two as well. Um, I'll be pretty quick. Um, first one is Nebraska. Um, they obviously had a crazy amount of hype going into last season and failed miserably and not even making a bowl game. And there are a number of factors, one being that they have a pretty tough schedule in the Big Ten that I feel like limits their ceiling. Uh, when you look at last year, I mean, they beat one single bowl team, and that was Illinois. So, I don't know, I'm a little bit skeptical about that from last year. Um, if they are with, it's, it looks like they're going to be without J.D. Spielman, odds are, 
and that's that's going to be a blow. Obviously, their top receiver. Um, they still have Dedrick Mills, Wondell Robinson, and Jack Stahl, but I mean, not a great core. And their line, their offensive line, it's experienced, but not necessarily great. Um, middle of the pack defense last year, and then they're losing their entire defensive line as well as cornerback Lamar Jackson, undrafted free agent signed by your New York Jets. And then it ultimately boils down to can Adrian Martinez deliver? And I had him at number 25 on my um, top 25 quarterbacks list because I think he has the potential. It's never been that he, a lack of talent. He has the potential, but I'm still skeptical. I can't speak. I'm still skeptical about if he can deliver, and that's why I don't. Nebraska may be a bowl game, but I don't think we see them in the you know, seven, eight, nine win, you know, area. And then my second team, which we've alluded to, is Utah. I think um, a big part nationally of why people really like Utah this year is because Utah did well last year and people started kind of realizing, oh, Utah's good. So not even looking into it, they're just like, okay, Utah's probably the team to beat in the South. And as true Pac-12ians, you can see Utah is losing a crazy amount. Uh, they lose Huntley. They lose Zach Moss. They lose basically all their top receivers. They lose Leaky Fotu, Jalen Johnson, Terrell Burgess. It's it's an exodus. They're dead last per ESPN in returning production. And with a margin of 4%, they have 37% um, returning production. And so at quarterback, they got um, Jake Bentley transferred from South Carolina. And I'm just not at all a Bentley believer. He has some arm talent, but he just he turns the ball over way too much. And I think I don't know. He does. He's not gonna have an incredible core around him. I have. I think he can probably be in the upper part of Pac-12 quarterbacks, but I don't think he's great. And I don't think he can, you know, get Utah back to the Pac-12 championship. With when USC and ASU both have young rising quarterbacks, and they have more set cores going into this year, it's really hard to think that Utah is going to win the South. Uh, I think they can make a bowl game, but not not too high on Utah. Because people, what people don't realize is Utah is never – Utah's not a program that reels in recruits. The way that Ky- – Kyle Whittingham, incredible coach. The thing about Utah, though, is they – develop guys so it takes a couple years it's like a cycle Utah is consistently a solid team but it's like every three four years is when they have that golden opportunity and it's kind of the reset of that cycle so not too high on Utah this year yeah I totally agree I'm a huge Kyle Whittingham guy I'd be shocked if they don't make a bowl game but especially considering their schedule they get to play UCLA who's mediocre and Colorado and Arizona who are both flat out terrible uh, but I don't think they'd all belong in the conversation Arizona State. And with USC, I'd be shocked if they make the Pac-12 championship game. And I think people who more casually follow the Pac-12 think that that's the range they're in. And I just disagree with that. Yeah, totally agree. So that's going to be the end to our main portion. But uh, we have one final thing, and that's going to be the two-minute drill. So that's just going to be... Uh, we're going to do two minutes, rapid-fire questions. Um, uh, I'll be asking them to Jacob, obviously. 
So Jacob, uh, let let me pull up the questions. All right, are you ready? I am. Let's do this. Okay. Three, two, one, go. Rendon or Arenado? Arenado. Who's winning the AFC East? Bills. Who's winning the Big Twelve? Oklahoma. Where will Caleb Williams land? Also Oklahoma. Oregon or Penn State, and can either make the CFP? Penn State, they both can, but I don't think either will. Uh, who's winning the NBA championship? Clippers. Who's winning the NL East? The Braves. Red Sox or Blue Jays? Blue Jays. Chances of San Diego making the postseason? 40% if not expanded, 70% if they do expand to the 16 teams. Should Jeff Passan be commissioner? Yes. Bryce Young or Mac Jones? Jones this year. Young after that. Can Miami win the Coastal? No, absolutely not. Favorite baseball stat? Woba, which is weighed on base average. Uh, will Texas be back under Tom Herman? No, not the guy. Who will be the best quarterback from the 2018 draft class besides Lamar? Josh Allen, he has the best situation. Who's worse, Goodell or Manfred? Both. <laughs> can the Denver Broncos make some noise in the postseason? They can get to the postseason. I don't think they're going to win in the postseason. How do you see the Chargers' season playing out? About 500. Start two or let Fitzmagic go out there? It's magic for this year. Best rivalry in sports? Yankees or Red Sox, no question. Okay, got through that pretty fast. Only needed a minute 20 to get through our two-minute gauntlet. Um, and that'll just about wrap up episode two of the Red Shirt Podcast. Um, thank you for joining us, Jacob. Um, yeah, guys, please let me know thoughts, opinions, if you have anything you want to talk about. Um, anyone interested in joining? Um appreciate all the support. Jacob, we'll definitely see you again on here, and have a great rest of your day. Thank you, guys, and we'll see you next episode.